Good morning. I'm Sophie Eisenberg, producer for today's WTBU News Brunch. We're now in our fourth week of putting together the show from several different time zones and broadcasting on Zoom. And now that we've begun to settle into the new normal, we're starting to ask what the future holds. What major changes is our society likely to see as a result of this crisis? That's a question we'll be trying to answer as we cover the many impacts of the pandemic. Thanks for sticking with us, and we hope you enjoy today's show. No breakfast? No worry. It's News Brunch from Boston University. Good morning and welcome to the WTVU News Brunch. I'm Nina Joseph in Boston. And I'm Emily Wilson in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Topping WTVU News at this hour, over 76,000 people have now died worldwide from the coronavirus. And the number over known cases is nearly 1.4 million. But there are possible signs of hope. Today, China reported zero deaths from coronavirus for the first time since the outbreak began, giving hope to countries still in the midst of the pandemic. However, there are still claims that the Chinese government may be underreporting their figures. The Chinese Communist Party has not publicly celebrated today's announcement of zero deaths, leading some to suggest there may be flaws in the count. And another flicker of hope, statistics out of Spain and Italy appear to show a slowing infection rate feeling hope that social distancing and lockdown policies are having the desired effect. In London, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is stable and in, quote, good spirits after spending the night in intensive care fighting coronavirus. He is believed to be the first known head of government in the world to have fallen ill with the virus. Johnson is in the ICU at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, and cabinet member Michael Gove told BBC Radio 4 that Johnson was not on a ventilator. Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab stepped in to take over running the country. But today, Japan declared a month-long state of emergency. Although the country has comparatively few cases, less than 4,000, the country is concerned that its aging population will be especially vulnerable to the virus. Restrictions to prevent the spread of the coronavirus are not being applied evenly everywhere in the United States. In Puerto Rico, for example, people have been ordered to stay home between 7 p.m. and 5 a.m. and to only leave in the day for absolute essentials. Failing to do so could result in a $5,000 fine or six months in jail. Our Puerto Rico correspondent, Frank Hernandez, is there now. Good morning, Frank. How's it going? Good, how are you? Pretty good, you know, staying inside and not bothering my neighbors. Excellent to hear. So first question, first and foremost, where is Puerto Rico now in terms of number of cases and deaths related to coronavirus? So right now, as of today at 7 a.m., cases are 573 and 23 deaths. So what measures are Puerto Rico, is Puerto Rico taking to address this and how do those measures compare to the United States? So right now, Puerto Rico, um, you mentioned it's at a curfew, 7 p.m., to 5 a.m., um, which is uh, pretty much the whole night. Um, on top of that, Puerto Rico is also issuing um, some permissions on who can be on the road at any given moment. For example, if your license plate ends on an even number, you uh, can only leave the house on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if it ends in an even, uh, an even number, an odd number, even number, the other days, um, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So given how many limitations that's putting on people's travel and just day-to-day business, are people actually following these limitations? Or is there a difference being made? Um, as of right now, I mean, it's kind of something that's happening with my family. We have two cars, 
and both cars have one car has an odd number, other car has an even number. So that hasn't affected my family in particular, and I'm pretty sure a whole other families are doing the same thing. Um, the one thing that is definitely affecting uh, people right now is that this weekend, since this is our kind of holy, uh, this is uh, holy week, and that's kind of like Puerto Rico spring break, um, because the governor doesn't want people to keep going out and keep doing that stuff, uh, she just decided that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, nobody can leave. All commerce will be closed. That includes supermarkets and pharmacies. Everything will be closed those three days. So right now, this week, people are just rushing to supermarkets to get to gas stations to get gas, to get uh, food, to get their medicines. Great. Good to hear. Thanks, Frank. No problem. Puerto Rico's heavy curfew restrictions do have many worried, though. The ACLU said on Sunday that these measures are unconstitutional and that it will be seeking an injunction to block them. There is nervousness worldwide about the outbreak's potential to lead to loss of freedoms, especially as authoritarian regimes seem to be using the crisis as an opportunity to consolidate power. Hungary's parliament recently voted to let Prime Minister Viktor Orban rule by decree, which basically means he can do anything he deems necessary to fight the virus, including suspending elections. President Rodrigo Duarte of the Philippines has ordered Filipinos locked down and is threatening to shoot anyone who creates, quote, chaos. He also has the power to take over private hospitals and crack down on what he sees as fake news, which essentially gives him the ability to decide what the facts are. And the virus has completely turned things around for Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who was barely hanging on to power after an inconclusive election and was just days away from having to appear in court on corruption charges. He now has placed the country under a state of emergency, freezing the courts and parliament. Wisconsin polls are up and running, making the state the first to hold in-person elections despite national concerns around COVID-19. Overnight legal battles has the primary votes on again, off again all night. Now, long lines in cities like Milwaukee are raising more concerns about the need to maintain social distancing. U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams says if we all keep our distance and do our part for the rest of April, we may be able to substantially flatten the curve. We are seeing many places across the country level out their, their hospitalizations, their ICU admissions, their death rates. We know mitigation works. I want people to focus on what we need to do in these next two weeks to really flatten the curve and slow death rates. Meanwhile, in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo isn't as hopeful. While the numbers are keeping him cautiously optimistic, by no means is he celebrating just yet. Total number of hospitalizations are down. The ICU admissions are down, and the daily intubations are down. Those are all good signs. The numbers look like they may be turning. Yay, it's over. No, it's not. The brunt of the outbreak is hitting, home, is hitting some groups harder than others. In New Orleans, 70% of corona cases are African Americans, even though only 30% of the population is Black. And those statistics are being mirrored in other parts of the country. Dr. George's ben Benjamin, executive director of the American Public Health Association, spoke to the disparities in the healthcare system that the pandemic is bringing to light. No one should be surprised that the um, health inequities that we've had, which have persisted um, through our nation, are worse um, in this outbreak. That has been the case for every single new disease process that we've had. So the fact that the um, the number of cases are disproportionate, considering the fact that many of the people that are that are impacted are in public-facing jobs, 
you know, the early face on this was people who were well off enough to be on a cruise or, you know, be, be in an international location. But we knew pretty early, once this hit home, that the, the populations that would be most at risk would be the underserved communities of color and people who had, you know, chronic diseases. Dr. Benjamin also said that he thinks systems like Obamacare should reopen for enrollment so that everyone can have insurance. Health exchanges should be open. The federal exchanges are absolutely essential right now. And the, and the federal you know, administration's decision not to do so is a, is a terrible mistake. Dr. Benjamin and many others feel that the COVID-19 outbreak will continue to have effects on the American healthcare system, even once the pandemic ends. He hopes we will begin to see more preparedness and a greater respect for healthcare workers. Stay-at-home measures are one of the main tools we have to control the spread of COVID-19, but one of the unfortunate consequences of society-wide lockdown has been to trap victims of domestic abuse in the home with their abusers. In a video statement on Sunday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres gave an update on the situation. Over the past weeks, as economic and social pressures and fear have grown, we have seen a horrifying global surge in domestic violence. In some countries, the number of women calling support services has doubled. The UN says calls to help lines have doubled in Lebanon and Malaysia and tripled in China since the start of the pandemic. Voice of America has reported a one-third increase in domestic violence rates in France and a sharp increase in the number of women killed in Turkey after a stay-at-home order was issued on March 11th. In the U.S., NBC News reported that 18 out of 22 law enforcement agencies they contacted reported seeing a surge in domestic violence calls. Kathy Black, executive director of domestic violence nonprofit Casa de la Medras, says an increase in calls for help is expected. When you're locked in with somebody who is, you know, um, abusive and controlling, uh, I can't imagine that you're not thinking, how can I get out of this? And so at the end of it, I think there will be a big push for um, services. Shelters for victims of abuse are already struggling to meet soaring demand. Many are already near capacity and underfunded. In local news, last night was the first overnight curfew in Boston. Mayor Marty Walsh was seeing too many large gatherings and told residents to stay home from 9 p.m. until 6 a.m. The curfew is expected to continue for about a month and does not include essential workers. The mayor, donning a face mask, asked everyone else to join him in wearing a mask at all times when leaving their home. Meanwhile, Boston Medical Center had to turn away several ambulances last weekend and its ICUs have hit capacity. Over four in 10 beds at the hospital are now occupied by diagnosed or suspected cases of COVID-19, the highest rate among local hospitals, according to the Boston Globe. And finally, First Lady Lauren Baker launched a new Massachusetts COVID-19 relief fund yesterday with $13 million in gifts and plans to raise more. Funds will go to charitable organizations throughout the state in order to help people whose lives have been disrupted by the pandemic with a special focus on helping the state's most vulnerable residents. And we'll be right back with more of the WTBU News Brunch. Stay with us. I guess those were the golden years Cause now the town is empty Empty as a mirror Empty as the harbor and the barber's chair Where do the old 
for some millennials, this economic tailspin feels like deja vu all over again. First, the 2008 recession, now this. With credit card debt, student loan debt, and a shaken housing market, millennials have very little money under their belts. And unlike their parents who lived through the 2008 recession, many millennials don't have half the assets. A Pew Research study, Center study shows that millennials are living at home longer and not jumping at marriage or home buying in comparison with older generations. This may be because of a cultural and societal shift, but could also be attributed to a lack of money. Mark Hamrick of bankrate.com predicts a recession. You cannot stop economic activity across at least half of the country uh, and not have what is essentially a decline or contraction. Think of a minus sign in GDP. The International Monetary Fund is already calling it a recession, and some worry it could be a full-blown depression. IMF Managing Director Kristalina Georgieva. It is now clear that we have entered a recession as bad or worse than in 2009. On the bright side, millennials are better educated than any generation before them, with about 39% of them with a bachelor's degree or higher, the Pew Research Center study shows. Renters, renters and landlords are both hurting as monthly paychecks are more scarce and unemployment benefits have not kicked in yet. For many folks, April 1st was no joke. It meant the rent was due and they couldn't pay it. After my mom lost her full-time job, our biggest fear is getting evicted and becoming homeless. Hospital switchboard worker Jade Brooks relies on her salary in addition to her mother's income to be able to pay rent and other living expenses for her and her family, and her salary alone may not be enough to pay the bills. Luckily in Massachusetts, landlords are legally prevented from evicting residents if they cannot afford to pay their rent. The new ruling will be effective until 30 days after the state of emergency is over right now, set for May 4th. Tenants must notify their landlords within 30 days if they know they'll be missing a payment. While this is a step in the right direction, the bill just postpones rent payments. It does not eliminate them. So for many people, this may mean bills will stack up and become an even bigger issue months from now. In Atlanta, where evictions are still allowed, renter Sarah Bush is concerned about the burden of rent on her and her roommate. The small amount I had managed to save is gone with this month's rent. Um, my roommate is sick with what we think is the coronavirus, but there's not enough tests, so we don't know. I have no idea what we're going to do about rent the next month. Having a sudden stop in income is especially an issue for those living paycheck to paycheck, which is a whopping 78% of Americans, a career builder survey shows. Many residents also work seasonal jobs. Unemployment benefits can be denied if workers haven't been receiving steady income from the establishment for a certain period of time. As a summer seasonal worker, their source of income was just about to flourish, but now that is all on hold. One Washington resident has filed for unemployment and is standing by for a response. I'm still awaiting um, a determination letter from the unemployment office and from the coworkers I've spoken to um, in my work, they're, they're in the same position. So uh, I think everyone's just remaining optimistic that the benefits will kick in um, before a lot of bills pile up. That was Jason Still of Spokane, Washington, who got laid off from his job as a cook because of the coronavirus. He and many others are waiting to see what kind of relief they can get from unemployment aid. COVID-19 has led to a spike in all sorts of people working remotely. But while this may seem like a short-term remedy during the pandemic, WTBU reporter Hannah Harn says making remote work a new normal could offer a new avenue of accessibility for those who may struggle to commute. Zoom, Skype, FaceTime, that's where we're working these days. 
And while many people are hoping remote work won't last forever, Kate McWilliams, a disability rights advocate in Canada, says remote work opportunities open up a new side of the workforce. So immediately, one great thing about making things accessible by allowing telecommunication is just opening that up to the disabled population and the chronically ill population or other people that may not be able to leave their homes as often, like even single mothers or working mothers. But switching to remote work could put additional pressure on those without access to the necessary materials or services they might have in an office. David Pedanicchio, a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto and author of Politics of Empowerment, says that accessibility in remote work also requires employers to give their people the tools they need to get the job done. So just because you work from a workplace to to home, it doesn't mean that you aren't going to provide accommodations because you're you're still dealing with the same kind of inequality, right? A person with a disability might be able to do the job remotely, but not if they don't get the kinds of accommodations that they should be getting because they're legislated. It doesn't excuse employers from having to follow, follow those regulations. Some employees may not have the same access to technology or services like high-speed internet. Additionally, missing out on in-person office culture can lead to team disconnect. Overall, however, both McWilliams and Pedanicchio hope a shift toward normalizing remote work will make jobs more accessible to the disabled community. When accessibility is needed for the able-bodied population or the healthy population, it's just a normal thing that they do. They just go ahead and do it. But then when the exact same measures need to be taken for the disabled population, it's you know called in called as an accessibility measure. Maybe there's a bit of stigma there, and people think that it's that it's a big deal or it's extra work they have to do. Fundamentally, we're going to see a change in, in work and in education. Whether they think this is positive or negative, I think it's going to happen. I think it's inevitable. What I think we need to do is make sure that people don't get left out. We cannot leave people with disabilities behind. For WTBU News, I'm Hannah Harn. Well, today's show has been focused on what changes the current crisis might carry over into the future. Our producer, Sophie Eisenberg, has some thoughts about what changes we need to make in order to step into a better future. The COVID-19 pandemic is forcing change upon this country, whether we like it or not. Typical of a virus, COVID-19 is hitting us where we are most vulnerable. Evidence of disparities that plague our society is coming out of almost every big story surrounding the crisis. People of color and low-income Americans are the likeliest to have lost work and be unable to pay back rent after stay-at-home measures are lifted. They will face even greater rates of eviction, crushing debt, and hunger than before. They are also at greater risk of getting sick, of having pre-existing health conditions that can lead to complications, and of being unable to access adequate treatment. In the midst of hardship and tragedy, many Americans are also rediscovering themselves and one another. The past several weeks have seen values re-examined, friendships deepened, families grown closer, and an enormous surge in acts of kindness, collaboration, and public spirit. And yet, while much of America is busy coming together in the face of this difficult moment, individuals in power across the public and private sectors still find it acceptable to make life-altering decisions based on a central assumption that has long dominated this country's culture and politics. The tacit assumption inherent in much of our way of life is that the United States is at its core an economy served by producers, rather than a nation that serves its citizens. Based upon this assumption, it makes perfect sense for our president to be more concerned with getting Wall Street back on its feet than with the hardships faced by millions, or for companies to base their behavior on PR needs and exploiting new market opportunities created by the crisis. 
The world is changing, and we can make use of this time to change it for the better. But in order for that to happen, we must first challenge the dominant narratives that have misguided us thus far. The conversations we choose to have about the nature of our society will impact everything, from our health to the health of the institutions that guarantee all other aspects of our well-being. For Boston University News, I'm Sophie Eisenberg, and that is my opinion. As COVID-19 spreads, most students are being asked to log into online classes, often on Zoom or Google Hangouts. However, many students without access to tech services and internet may be left behind. Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, a fellow at the Center of Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution, says that while schools are making progress in transitioning online, it may not be enough to avoid long-term consequences. We have about 52 million kids that are out of school. And those 52 million students who are out of school, a good majority of them have not been able to successfully transition to online learning simply because they lack broadband access within their home. And I really want to commend the schools because I think at the heart of this is many schools are not rolling out remote uh, learning programs if one, even if one kid doesn't have access. And so I, I, I think that moral compass is right on. But I do think we're taking way too long uh, to get kids online, which I think has potential consequences in the long run. Currently, 147,000 people in Massachusetts lack access to a wired connection capable of average download speeds, and another 64,000 people don't have any wired internet providers available in their area. Turner Lee also says out that many students in need of devices or internet access are often also part of other support programs. What we do know about digital inclusion is that all uh, activity is local. Oftentimes, those eligible kids are the same kids that come in for free or reduced price lunch, and schools are sufficiently providing for their nutritional needs. Why not provide for their broadband needs simultaneously? The kid comes and get a lunch. You find out, you know, that they need a device. You make that happen. The next time they come to lunch, they walk away with a sandwich and a PC. BU students learned early this morning that they wouldn't be studying abroad or during summer term as the university has elected to move all summer classes online. In addition, Boston University will not be changing tuition fees for the spring 2020 semester, despite petitions and posts on social media from students asking for some sort of reimbursement. WTBU's Frank Hernandez says students argue online courses are not what they signed up for. Boston University has already agreed to refund student accounts for the unused portions of their room and board. However, additional charges, like the cost of tuition, will remain the same. The university says it's because classes are still ongoing, albeit on the online video platform Zoom. However, some students don't necessarily agree with this reasoning. Honestly, that's a very concerning decision from BU's part. Things have changed drastically for everyone, and a lot of people aren't getting the same quality education they are, you know, remotely than in the same way that they would if they were in the classroom. That was Danny Roa, a senior at Boston University. Roa fortunately finds herself in a financial position that allows her to pay for both her tuition and living expenses. However, she acknowledges that BU is letting down all those students who can't pay both. I think at least they should get a refund. I mean, like, I, I'm i not going to ask for a refund because I don't need it, but, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this situation, so I don't mind having to pay full tuition for the semester if it means that someone else can get that partial refund. And while BU's decision to not refund their students might have caught Roa by surprise, junior Ethan Brown saw it a mile away. I mean, I wasn't too surprised, but I was also a little bummed by that. I get they have a lot of 
expenses and a lot of that didn't go away but at the same time the service I paid for isn't the service I'm getting. Brown thinks one of the major reasons why BU decided against refunding some of tuition is because other universities haven't done so either. For him, all the universities are looking at each other in the same way that online classes, pass-fill credits, and room and board reimbursements seem to spread as universities nationwide start implementing these measures. Despite BU's decision, Brown thinks Boston University is doing the best it can given the circumstances. It would have been nice to get some of that money back, but overall, I think at this moment, the most important things are the way they're trying to keep us safe and trying to give us some sort of fair educational opportunity similar to what we signed up for. For WTBU, I'm Frank Hernandez. And we'll be right back. We're the students united and nothing can tamp us. We're taking our message to all parts of campus, the administrations who we're trying to find. We want to know why our tuition's so high. So we check the yoga studio. They're not there. The coffee shop, ice cream machine everywhere. The sauna, the climbing wall, pool, the high dive. We In the midst of the crisis, it feels strange to remember that just a few months ago, we were talking about another crisis, climate change. WTBU special topics reporter Catherine Sindels is here with more about how the two crises might be related. Yes, it is strange, but totally understandable that our warming planet has taken a back seat as coronavirus occupies the minds of scientists and the public. I spoke to experts to find out, are there lessons to be learned from both crises? That's the sound of Venice, free from boats that usually carry thousands of tourists and locals up and down the canals, from a video posted on Twitter by journalist Alan Friedman. Since Corona hit Italy with a vengeance, videos from the city have shown clear waters and fish returning to the empty canalways. In Sardinia, dolphins are swimming in the usually busy port. On the other side of the world in Brazil last week, almost 100 critically endangered hawksbill sea turtles hatched on the empty beach and made their way to the sea. The lockdown here in London has cut in half the tiny particle pollution and nitrogen dioxide pollution that normally adds to the grey skies in the city. Jonathan Levy, a professor of environmental health at Boston University, says people are seeing an improvement in air quality across the world. We're driving a lot less, we're flying a lot less, and there's a lot less traffic and traffic-related air pollution. So in a lot of urban areas, really around the world, we're seeing significant improvements in air quality. People have certainly seen the visibility benefits in places where you could not see the mountains, you could not, you could not see the mountains. Nitrogen dioxide is produced by cars and factories and can cause problems like coughing, asthma and difficulty breathing. Some scientists have suggested that the number of early deaths avoided due to cleaner air might potentially outweigh the number of deaths from coronavirus. One study found that two months of pollution reduction in China could save as many as 8,000 lives in the future. Levy says he hopes seeing the visible impact of human behaviour on our world will help people be more conscious in the future and try and keep our footprint on the world as small as possible. This is something that we could aspire to, right? We shouldn't need a global pandemic to drastically reduce our emissions. So it gives us a goal and a marker and something that we could say, again, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if you could 
hear the birds like this and see the mountains off in the distance on a conventional day, not, not a pandemic day. Wow, that's really interesting. But are these changes just temporary or will they last in the long run? That's exactly what I wondered. After making such huge changes to their daily lives, driving and flying less, wasting less food, will the public be more likely to continue these environmentally friendly behaviours after coronavirus? Or will we just see a bounce back to the way things were? So to find out, I spoke to Lorraine Whitmarsh, a professor of environmental psychology at the University of Cardiff in Wales and director of the UK Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformation. In relation to the virus is not the same as what we've seen in the past when people are asked to change their behaviour to tackle climate change, probably because the, the nature of the, the risk is much more immediate than it is in terms of climate change, which is sort of more psychologically distant. It's not as tangible for people. Whitmarsh says the reduction in travel by cars and planes as well as more sustainable cooking and eating because people are eating out less and wasting less food is having a positive impact on the environment. But, she says, when this has happened before in history, such as after the financial crisis, there has been a return to the norm afterwards. She says that, although people have changed their behaviour significantly for coronavirus, they may be reluctant to do so in the long term, even if it is benefiting the environment. I think people are willing to accept this because it's a, well, relatively short-term set of um, measures but the idea that we might have to permanently change some of those sorts of things I think is not going to be as easy to communicate to the public. Whitmarsh argues it is key to get people to recognise the co-benefits of sustainable behaviour such as the health or financial incentives. She thinks the challenge for her team over the coming months is to figure out how they can learn from the current pandemic to help them shift public behaviour in the long term. I think really one of the big lessons that we can draw from the current situation is that people are willing to do something for the greater good, for societal benefits, if there's a kind of sense that we're all in this together. We need to kind of create this social norm, we need to create a visible social movement around climate change that shows that actually we can, um, we can do our bit and actually we're all in it together. So there is a silver lining, but it's going to take a lot of work from people like Whitmarsh and all of us to get there. It won't be easy. It never is, I guess. The global race to find treatments for coronavirus continues. The most controversial of these is hydroxychloroquine, the anti-malarial drug that President Trump hailed as a, quote, game changer, despite warnings from his own experts that it is far from a proven treatment. Clinical trials across the world are testing the drug alone and in combinations, both to ease symptoms or as an all-out cure. However, there, are, there have been cases of inappropriate self-medication. One man in Arizona even died after he and his wife heard about it at Trump's press conference and self-administered a non-pharmaceutical version of the drug that was supposed to be used to clean fish tanks. Another method being tested in the US, France, and China involves transfusions of blood plasma from coronavirus survivors into patients with severe symptoms to give them the needed antibodies. This method has shown effectiveness with other infectious diseases, including Ebola and SARS. And at Boston's own MGH, a new trial is using nitric oxide, which can be inhaled to increase oxygen levels in the blood. They hope it can help some patients from needing a ventilator. Nitric oxide has many uses. You're more likely to encounter it popping up as the main ingredient in its most famous little pill form, Viagra. In fact, scientists in China are experimenting to see whether a dose of the erectile dysfunction drug itself could be enough to help COVID patients in respiratory distress. 
Well, that Chinese trial certainly will be a hard act to follow. Yeah, they definitely will be stiff competition. A week ago, you might have skipped around town showing your smiling face, but no more. Now folks are using bandanas, scarves, even bra cups, so I see as recommended, to cover their faces. You might even have seen a sanitary napkin wrapped around someone's head. Yes, the mask, in all its forms, is the latest fashion statement. WTBU's Kendall Tamer reveals it all. I'm going to continue to wear the mask and keep my identity a secret. That's right, we're talking about masks, but not to protect your identity, it's to protect your health and the health of your loved ones. For the past few months, public health officials have told healthy people not to wear masks as a way to protect themselves from the coronavirus, but new information about how the COVID-19 virus spreads has the CDC recommending that everyone now wear non-medical face coverings in public settings. Health advocates feel the government should begin establishing a plan to provide the public with masks, but as that's yet to happen, many are finding ways to make them at home. Many tutorials have been offered online on how to make your own masks at home. You'll need scissors, sewing supplies, and a breathable, tightly woven cotton fabric, as well as elastic ribbon. If you don't have sewing supplies, you can make masks using a bandana, old t-shirt, or strip of cloth. Uh, not all heroes wear masks. That's right, Mr. Wayne. While President Donald Trump says the guidelines are voluntary, and while many studies show that these DIY masks are not nearly as effective as the commercial masks made for healthcare workers, they are far better than nothing. The CDC says the masks limit the spread of infectious droplets in the air and discourage people from touching their faces. So the next time you venture out for your essentials, be a hero and wear a mask. For WTBU News, I'm Kendall Tamer in Plattsburgh, New York. Have you ever worn the mask? One, two, one, two. M to the A to the S to the K. Put the mask on the face just to make your next day. Feds be hawking me. Jokers be stalking me. I walk the street and camouflage my identity. My posse in a Brooklyn wear the mask. This is the sound of a pending call on Quarantine Chat, an app that sets up phone calls between strangers from across the globe as a way to foster connection while we're all self-isolating. I thought I'd give it a try. So yesterday afternoon, I got a message on my phone that Quarantine Call was waiting, and the app suggested that I ask about this mysterious partner's favorite food. What's your favorite food? <laughs> oh, I'm a big food enthusiast, so that's kind of a hard question to answer, but... Me? Me too. Yeah, it's, it's hard being a foodie. You can't pick just one. We chatted for about 15 minutes. He was from Columbus, Ohio, but didn't want to tell me his name. I asked how long he's been on the chat app. I've only answered like two calls before this. It's just <laughs> the last two times I've answered <laughs> the quarantine chat, it's been a guy on the other end that I've said. That is said, I didn't want to talk to some other guy. <laughs> so do you, is your impression that people are joining quarantine chats in hopes of finding <laughs> love or something? I kind of, I'm not sure. That wasn't my, uh, 
Uh, whatever, but uh, seems they hung up on me both times. What were you looking for when you signed up for quarantine chats? Exactly that. Really? Yeah, chats. The first one, she went a little crazy on the phone in like 30 seconds. When can I see you? When are we going to be together? When are we going to do this? When are we going to do that? So I hung up. And that didn't change your impression of the app at all or make you want to stop taking the calls? I, <laughs> I can't tell you why I hit the button. I just hit the button and then here you are. Sorry, we couldn't find a partner. And just like that, without my warning, my quarantine call was over. So this is not, if, if this is not the connection you hope you will get through corona craziness, you might want to try something else. Self-quarantine call isn't for you. Maybe try this solution to solitude. A set of 36, quest 36 questions may be your answer. In 1997, Dr. Arthur, Arthur Aaron, a psychology professor at Stony Brook University, published 36 questions scientifically proven to bring people closer together. Here's how it worked. Two or more people take turns asking each other questions in person. And by the end of the Q&A, they develop an enduring bond. In fact, some of the participants ended up getting married. So I wondered if the bond could still be built virtually versus in person. How would you say this would be a good activity for people to do while stuck in quarantine? Well, I would suggest two things. One is, um, if they're an individual, to do this with a friend by Skype or by, you know, Zoom or something, someone they don't, you know, uh, know real well, but uh, fairly well, you know, or, or that they don't know at all. If you're a couple, do it with another couple by Skype or by Zoom. You could do it with each other too, but it, it would be more powerful to sit down with another couple and, you know, where all four of you are on the screen, you know, two of you at one end, two at the other end, and each of the four of you is answering each question. Would you say that this is mainly for people in romantic relationships? We primarily design this for not for people in romantic relationships, to bring two strangers into the lab, usually same-sex heterosexual strangers, just to create a sense of closeness. Romantic closeness is more complicated. Um, <laughs> the New York Times article, which came out a few years ago, that sent this whole thing viral, focused on its role in romantic relations, you know, strengthening relationships, but that wasn't our goal. Um, that's not to say it can't help with that. Can you tell me about a story where you tried this experiment on two people? When we were first pilot testing a version that uh, was aimed more at romantic feelings, uh, the first couple we tried it on, they were a couple research assistants in our lab who were working on a different project. They weren't aware of this project. They actually not only fell in love, they got married. And Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You don't have 36 questions for me. Ah, that would be funny, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. This may be a fun activity to connect with people in these times where it's hard to feel connected. Hey, Emily. Yeah, Ina? It's that time again, round two of Indoor Fun, our weekly segment where we share some of the best stuff we've come across that you can do from home while you shelter in place. This week, we have a selection of online resources you can use to pick up a hobby, get in shape, or learn something new. Let's start with food. Massimo Butura, one of the top-rated chefs in the world, has been streaming live cooking lessons on his Instagram, and so has Queer Eyes' Anthony Porosky. Or, if you want to stay local, Boston-based Milk Street Cooking School is offering free online classes through April 30th, and Boston's Magazine's Best Bartender of 2019, 
Naomi Levy, is posting cocktail demos for you to make at home. Maybe you have a more specific goal in mind, like getting really good at making challah and matzah ball soup. In that case, you should check out Tradish, the Jewish Food Society's project celebrating recipes you can make from your pantry. You know how I get my food fix, Emily? How? I paint cakes. Every weekday at 10 a.m. Eastern, Boston-based acrylic painter Laurel Greenfield paints a different cake live on her Instagram so the rest of us can follow along. She's also holding online courses for people interested in painting other stuff besides cakes. Okay, all this food talk is making me hungry, but I can't go to the gym anymore. That's okay. There are a bunch of gyms and studios producing online content right now. Core Power Yoga, Gold's Gym, and the YMCA are all offering free access to their online classes and workouts for a limited time while their locations are closed. If it's your brain you want to exercise, try the Open University's free Mandarin Chinese course for beginners. Or if you already speak Mandarin, you could go to elementsofal.com to learn all about artificial intelligence. Or you can just scroll through... Dewal Sa's list of 450 Ivy League classes you could take for free. You'll find that list on the website freecodecamp.org. Okay, this was fun, but all this learning is giving me a headache. I need to go out and reconnect with nature. Then I have one last class for you. Oregon State University is offering a free intro series to their Master Gardener program. Okay, you know, you got me. But seriously, no more classes. That's all for this week. I promise next week it will be all fun and games. And that'll do it for this edition of the WTBU News Brunch. I'm Ina Joseph in Boston. And I'm Emily Wilson in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Hope you stay healthy. Lately, I've been building things, castles and airplanes. I've been painting pictures from my dreams. Yeah, I'm done waiting. Tied superstition in my mind I must be breaking mirrors Under ladders all the time